Now, verse 1, coupled with verse 14, is one of the clearest, plainest affirmations of the deity of Christ found anywhere in the Bible. If you believe the Word was God, verse 1, and if you believe the Word became flesh, verse 14, then the only conclusion you can come to is that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, Jesus Christ, God in Human Flesh. We began a new study last week in the book of John, and Pastor Carl examined the passage that talks about God being the Word and how Jesus was both the Word and was light, attesting to the deity of Christ. We saw how John the Baptist foretold of Jesus' coming, and today we will look at the humanity of Jesus Christ. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. College professor on the university campus in which he served was given the task to an honors group of teaching a course entitled The Bible, as literature. So in order to test their general knowledge of the Bible to know really where to begin to start, he passed out a brief questionnaire. And the results of their biblical illiteracy was absolutely stunning to him. He wasn't trying to trick anyone. He didn't ask questions that were designed simply for a Bible scholar, but just basic questions like, what was Sodom and Gomorrah? And one student in full seriousness came back, they were lovers. <laughs> That's a rather creative answer. It's wrong, but nonetheless creative. Another question on the test, who was Jezebel? To which one well-meaning student wrote, Ahab's donkey. Uh, now, that's not actually too far from the truth. Uh, <laughs> then he asked them to name the four Gospels. And one young man wrote, Matthew, Mark, Luther, and John. <laughs> Someone else, in response to the question, who is Barnabas? They wrote, the Apostle Paul's wife. On a uh, multiple choice section in the test, one student selected as their answer, Eve was created from an apple. And then in the fill in the blank, Jesus was baptized by and a number of people selected Moses. And then I suppose the question that took the cake that was answered by one student, this question, what was Golgotha? He said, I think it was the name of the giant who slew the apostle David. Now, I face a challenging assignment this morning, and if I could give a questionnaire of my own, I would, and I would have one simple question. Who, according to your opinion, is Jesus of Nazareth? Now, as many of you know, I worked for 12 and a half years with Campus Crusade for Christ, and a number of those years were on the university campus. And every fall, we would survey thousands, literally thousands of incoming freshmen, and we give them a very simple four-question survey. It only took them about a minute to fill it out as they stood in line. 
And the very first question was, who, according to your opinion, is Jesus of Nazareth? And the overwhelming answer that they gave, and I suspect the same answer that if we surveyed people in our own county and state and even our own country, the overwhelming answer that they gave was not that he was a great man or a good teacher or another prophet or a martyr who died for a cause that he believed in, but as probably most Americans would answer, they wrote, he is the son of God. But while I discovered that while most students would respond to that question in that fashion, they really did not understand the significance of their answer that he is the son of God. And so this morning, as you can see from your note-taking outline, I want to address the subject, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. Now, last week, we cracked the door to the prologue of the gospel. The introduction is really comprised in the first 18 verses. And in these 18 verses, at least in kernel form, you find all that John is going to cover in the rest of this great gospel. And this morning, one of the key themes that he hits on is the doctrine of the incarnation. Now, let me speak to the children for just a second because you need to sooner or later learn some very, very important theological words. Bible words or Bible concepts. And one of those words is the word incarnation. Now, it's like other words we use, the word trinity or the word sovereignty or original sin or eternal security. You will not find those words recorded anywhere in Holy Scripture. And so the word incarnation is not a Bible word, but it is a Bible doctrine that is plainly taught like the doctrine of the trinity in Scripture. It comes from another language, Latin kids, and it literally means in flesh. And so when we speak of the incarnation, we're speaking about God taking on human flesh. Now, there was a time when you were not. There was a time when you did not exist. Now, in God's mind's eye, he knew that someday you would exist. He knew that someday that you would be created by him. The days that were written for you, the Bible says, even before there was yet one, were all recorded in God's book. But unlike you, the Lord Jesus, there was never a time when he did not exist. He is the eternal God, but there was a time when he did not have a human body. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas, God becoming a human, taking on a human body. He added to his deity an additional nature, humanity, through the virgin birth. And so he remains forever, as the old confessions say, truly God, truly man. Two natures in one person. Now, if you were here last time, we saw in the prologue that there are a number of names that are given to the Lord Jesus. He's called the light. He's called the life. Uh, he's called the word. And as we're going to see this morning, he's called the only begotten son. Through Christ the Word, God became audible. Through Christ the light, God became visible. Through Christ the life, God became tangible. And through Christ the Son, we will see today, God becomes knowable. And so the whole prologue really paints a picture of God that is so great, that is so awesome, that, it were, that were it not for Jesus Christ, none of us could know Him. Now, I wondered as you heard me read this morning if you noticed the abrupt change that takes place when you come to verse 14, which ended last week in verse 13 because that was really the natural break 
and the inspired texts of Scripture. When you come to verse 14, there's a deliberate change that takes place. Because in the first 13 verses of John chapter 1, God uses the third person singular pronoun or third person nouns all the way through it. For instance, let's look at it quickly. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Drop down to verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and, his own, and those who were His own did not receive Him, but as many as received Him, and so on. It's He, He, They, They, all the way through. It's the third person. But suddenly, when you come to verse 14, there's a change of pronouns. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Verse 16, for of His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Three times now you have the third person pronoun we and us. And that's very significant because John is deliberately moving from past to present. He's moving from history into human experience. He's moving to an event that took place 2,000 years ago to something that can influence and affect your life today. You see, the question, the unasked question in the prologue is how could something that happened 2,000 years ago, two millennia ago, have any significance on my life today? And John is going to answer that unspoken question by using two key verbs here in verses 14 and 16 that unfold the entire passage for us. I have them underlined in my Bible. In verse 14 it says, we beheld His glory. And in verse 16 it says, we have all received grace upon grace. So there's something we have beheld, there is something we have seen in Jesus Christ, John says, but there is also something we have received in Jesus Christ. And so putting the two thoughts together, John is saying, we have seen His glory and we have received His grace. And I hope before we're done this morning, not only will you see His glory, but if you have not yet done it, you will receive his grace. And so John is going to try to convince us that the only wise approach to take is to receive the Son of God as your living King. And he's going to introduce that concept to us here in the prologue, but then all the way through the gospel, he's going to bring those truths home. He's going to show us the glory of God. We're in that first section of the gospel, as I gave you the outline last week, where we look at the signs of the Son of Man. And he gives us seven miracles. There are four words in the Greek New Testament for miracle. But the one John uses is a specialized term. It's the word for a miracle with a message. And so he carefully selects seven miracles from the life of Christ. Only two that are found, uh, two that are found in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but then five that aren't found anywhere else in the Bible. And he carefully selects these seven messages, seven messages through these miracles to teach us something about the Lord Jesus Christ, that you might believe he is the Christ, and that in believing you might find real life in his name. Now this morning there are three principles concerning the incarnation of Christ that I want you to see. Number one there on your note-taking outline, I want us to begin by pondering the marvel of his incarnation. Now, it's very interesting that John ignores all the wonderful stories of the Lord's birth that are found in Matthew and Luke. So instead, he just launches directly into the wonder of the fact that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, that we might ponder it, that God became a man. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh 
dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I know many of you were not here last week, and so we're walking into verse 14 cold without any context. But for the rest of us, just to review simply, because one of our goals, as we discussed last week, is for us to be able to take the Gospel of John and to be able to just walk someone through it. And so I'm encouraging you during maybe one or two quiet times during the week as you spend time alone with God to go back over the sermon notes and take the text that we examined for that given week and see if you can walk yourself through those verses as to what they are saying, what do they mean, and how do they apply to my life today. And so if you will do that, if you will meditate on God's truth where it reverberates in your soul, I want to tell you, you will find as a believer tremendous life through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so remember the context of verse 14. He's already said in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, we saw it does not refer to a definite start, but to an indefinite state. Literally, in beginning, the text reads, in the beginning, when the world was created, to whom he attributes that creation to Jesus Christ, the Son was already there. The eternal God was there ever before his historical manifestation. There was never a time when he was not. He was preexistent before the universe was ever made because he was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he adds, he was in the beginning with God. Now, if you stop and think about it, the heretics, the cults, always have two central themes, two central errors to their groups. They either deny the doctrine of the Trinity or they deny the deity of Christ or typically they deny both. And yet this verse, in incipient form, gives us some image of the Trinity because it says the Word was God and the Word was with God. Jesus, who is identified as the Word later on in this chapter, is God and yet He is with God. And so John, in a very sublime truth, is equating the Lord Jesus with the Father, and yet he's inseparably distinct from him. And so somebody might say, well, if he's with God, then he's not God. And so to take all of the ambiguity out of it, he says the Word was God. It's a clear, emphatic declaration. And remember, the way in the original Greek New Testament you emphasize something, the way you pounded on the pulpit or underlined something in red was by word order. And so you took something out of its normal word order if you wanted to emphasize it. And so literally it says God was the Word. You cannot get any more emphatic than that. Do you want to get rid of the deity of Christ? You cannot because he ties a very tight knot here in these opening verses. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now let me just say parenthetically, you say, how do the cults get around it? Well, the Mormons say that the Bible really can't be trusted. When you put a Mormon up against the wall, he's going to tell you the only book that can be trusted is the 67th book of the Bible, as they call it, the Book of Mormon that the Bible has been corrupted. How does a Jehovah's Witness do it? Well, he's a little more bold and dramatic. He just rewrites John chapter 1 in verse 1. The Jehovah's Witness was found by a man by the name of Charles Taz Russell, a man who is in, in his own writing admitted, we have a letter in the man's own writing, he admitted he did not know a word of Greek. And yet he took 
the Bible, the English Bible, selectively went through it and wrote his own translation called the New World Translation. And he writes John 1.1 in this fashion. In the beginning, the Word was. Nothing wrong with that. And the Word was with God. That's okay. But then he adds, and the Word was a God. Now listen, if you were an atheist, if you did not believe the Bible was the Word of God, but you knew Koine Greek, the Greek of the New Testament, you would know it was impossible to translate it in that fashion. Notice he says, Anarche ha alagos. Anarche, in beginning, on halagos was the Word, and halagos, the Word on proston, on was with God. And God was the Word. Every single English translation of the Bible translates it like you have in the text before you. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yet the New World Translation purposely distorts it because this man, Russell, wanted to write out the deity of Christ. If you know Spanish, if you know Russian, Chinese, Japanese, Portuguese, I don't care what language you are reading the Bible from, they all translate John 1.1 in the identical fashion. And yet this man wrote a damnable heresy into the Bible to deceive people to embrace his false doctrine. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he adds, he was in the beginning with God. Now look at verse 3. All things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. The Lord Jesus Christ here is the creator. Not only did he exist before Bethlehem, he created the vast universe, including the ground in which Bethlehem stood. All things were made by him. He is the very instrument of creation. Apart from him, not even one thing was made apart from him. And so the Lord Jesus Christ in his nature, in his attributes, in his actions, in his character is all that God is. He has the characteristics of deity. And it is in that context that verse 14 screams out at us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John makes three critical statements that I don't want you to miss, that if you ponder them, they will cause you to absolutely marvel at the incarnation of Christ. First, he says, the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. That is, he took on humanity to himself. And of course, the birth of the Lord Jesus is absolutely unique. The Word became flesh, not the creation of a new person as in your fleshly birth, but perfect sinless humanity added to his endless deity. The Word was born flesh. The incarnation, it was deity funneled in to humanity. Now, verse 1, coupled with verse 14, is one of the clearest, plainest affirmations of the deity of Christ found anywhere in the Bible. If you believe the Word was God, verse 1, and if you believe the Word became flesh, verse 14, then the only conclusion you can come to is that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. In other words, humanity was added to his deity. And yet in becoming flesh, the Bible teaches he did not change. He did not give up any of his deity. Now, as you know, the word flesh is used in different ways in the New Testament. Very often it's used to refer to our fallen Adamic nature. Paul speaks about the deeds of the flesh, of the fallen sinful nature. And then he lists immorality, adultery, and all kinds of wicked things. But here the word flesh is being used, much like we commonly use it in English, 
to refer not to our fallen humanity, but to our humanity itself. And so when it says the Word became flesh, it's not speaking here of fallenness or sinfulness. It's just simply saying God became a man. Now, secondly, not only did the Word become flesh, we're told the Word dwelt among us. The Bible says He dwelt among us. Now, this word dwelt, or in some of your translations, lived, is a verb that literally means to live in a tent. In fact, when it's used in a noun form in the New Testament, it just means a tent. Now, that's rather interesting. Remember the Apostle Paul, when he described our bodies, how did he describe them? As a tent. Listen to what he said to the church at Corinth. He said, For we know that if the earthly tent, which our house is torn down, that is, if this earthly tent, this body, and he uses a tent because our body is so temporary, here today, gone tomorrow, the Bible says, Boast not yourself about tomorrow because you don't know what tomorrow may bring. If our earthly tent is torn down, if we die, the Bible says we have a building. Hey, I have here a tent. But when I die and I go home to be with the Lord, I'm getting a building. Ultimately, God is going to give me a permanent structure to live in, a permanent structure in which you can relate to me in, a body that will take this mortal flesh and put on immortality. He says, we have a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. And so our bodies are little tents that we live in. And so it's interesting that Paul describes us in that way, as does John, as he describes the Lord Jesus. He pitched his tent among us. He's describing his humanity. And yet this word tent, interestingly enough, is the same word that's used in the Old Testament for the tabernacle. You know, as the Jews had, had been uh, deported out of uh, the promised land and scattered all among the nations... They lost their ability to read their scriptures in the original language. And so there came a time in their history when a translation was put into Greek. The Old Testament was put in Greek because that was the universal language of the day. You know what it's called, the Septuagint. You see it very often out in the margin of your Bible, abbreviated LXX. And very often in the New Testament, it quotes the Septuagint. That's why when you go back and you read the verse that is uh, footnoted, and you say, oh, this comes from Isaiah 9, and you go back and you read it in the New Testament, it says the same thing, but not exactly the same way because we're working between languages. He very often quotes the Septuagint. Here's the point I'm trying to make. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word tent is translated tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. What is John trying to do for us? It's very clear. Remember, there was a tent, a portable structure that the children of Israel used as the place of worship. It later became more permanent. It later became the temple. Remember David? He said, man, God's got a tent for his house, and I'm living in a palace. God ought to have a more permanent structure. And go, so God ultimately built a temple, not by David, though he collected the material, but by David's son, Solomon. But here's the thing. They had this tent, and the tent, or the tabernacle as it's called... It's a beautiful prophecy and picture of Christ. I hope maybe someday God will let me preach a series on the tabernacle because every dimension of the tabernacle, the way it's shaped, the way the furniture is put together, everything is a picture of the work and character of the Lord Jesus Christ, this divine human person. And if you remember, in a section of the tabernacle, later in the temple, there was a section known as the Holy of Holies. And once a year on Yom Kippur, Yom Day Kippur, 
Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, you hear Jews today talk about, well, we're celebrating the Day of Atonement, one of the holidays, like Hanukkah, that they celebrate. On the Day of Atonement, they would go into that section of the temple, the high priest would, and he would take an innocent, unblemished lamb, and he would slaughter it, and he would put the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was about the size of this pulpit turned sideways. And in the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments, the second set, because Moses destroyed the first due to the disobedience of the people. There was the budded rod of Aaron, and there was the jar of manna. The budded uh, rod of Aaron, if you remember, represented the children of Israel's rejection of God's leadership. The jar of manna, the rejection of God's provision. The second tablets, the rejection of God's law. All became symbols of sin. How the children of Israel had failed God. And so the high priest would go in, he would take the blood and he'd put it on the top of the mercy seat. And when God looked down on the nation, he didn't see all of their sin. He saw the blood that had temporarily atoned for the sin. And when he put the blood on the top of the mercy seat, God would come in his glory. The Shekinah glory would fill the temple. And of course, if the high priest did not approach God properly, he'd be killed. Tradition tells us they tied a rope around his leg and they'd drag him out because no one dared go in if he died. And if they stopped hearing the jingle of the bells on the robes that he wore, they knew he died and so they would pull him out. And so here's the point he's trying to make. Just as God himself, his presence came into that tabernacle, he is saying of the Lord Jesus Christ, he tabernacled among us. It is absolutely incredible imagery. The word was born flesh. The word dwelt among us. Third, the Bible says, we beheld his glory. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory. Now, the word glory is a very important biblical word. It's doxa in the original. We get our English word doxology. You know, that little liturgical expression of praise that they sing in some churches every Sunday when the offering is given. So what does the word glory mean? How is it used in the Bible? Well, if you just took a concordance and kind of followed your way through the Old Testament, you would discover that the glory of God refers to that outward shining of an inward reality. The glory of God was the outward shining of the inward being of God. Now, God's inward being, the Bible teaches, is invisible. And so all we can see is His glory, the outward shining of God. It's kind of like the sun. If we look at the sun, we will burn our retinas and we will go blind if we stare at it. But we can see the sunshine, we can see its brightness, its effulgence, so that we can see a world that is lit up. Even so, we cannot directly look at God's invisible being. If we were to look at God, we would immediately die. But what God does is He allows us to see His glory. Just as we cannot see the sun, but we can see the sunshine, even so we cannot see God, but we can see the glory of God, the outward shining of His inward being. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 002. Remember that you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. 
Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.